Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Matt Ferrek, the legendary captain of the Prussian 8th Hussars who led the final charge during Operation Michael at the height of Germany's spring offensive in 1918. That was of course all made up, but if you would like to have your name shouted out on the podcast and for me to make something silly up about you as well, then make sure you pledge on Patreon at the $7 level or above. More on that later on, but first... Enjoy this episode. You're listening to the Thirty Years War episode 8. We've seen before how the Ottomans and the Hasburs clashed, and what impact that had on the Holy Roman Empire and on the religious demographics of Europe as a whole. It's time now that we picked up our story from 1606, when the war between the Turks and the Habsburgs ended. But we're also going to take you on something of a tour of Germany, the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation in the early 17th century, because it's time that we got a feel for the major fears and challenges of the German princes, and a recap somewhat on the lay of the land. This isn't all a recapping episode though, you're bound to find some useful nuggets in here, that will contribute to the overall Thirty Years' War story. Without any further ado, I'll now take you to, well, where else? The Holy Roman Empire. I am very much afraid that the states of the empire, quarrelling fiercely among themselves, may start a fatal conflagration, embracing not only themselves, but also those countries that are in one way or another connected with Germany. All this will undoubtedly produce the most dangerous consequences, bringing about the total collapse and unavoidable alteration in the present state of Germany, and it may also, perhaps, affect some other states. This bleak assessment of the state of the Holy Roman Empire in 1615 came from a minor German potentate, the Landgrave of Hesse-Kassel, and was communicated to the French government. 
Considering what followed three years later, it can seem as though such gloomy predictions were almost too perfect to be true. Yet, in fact, the looming threat of conflict in the Empire was clear for anyone to see. Potentates of all sizes were building up their forces in the second decade of the 17th century, and where this was impossible due to local opposition or cost, immense sums were spent instead on vast building projects to ensure that regions of otherwise low population still managed to punch well above their weight and boast impressive fortifications, complete with sophisticated bastions, earthen works, and specially designed walls in the modern Trace Italien style. When English traveller John Taylor visited the city of Hamburg in 1617, for instance, he was shocked at what he saw. And when I perceived these fortifications, I was amazed, for it was almost incredible for the number of men and horses that are daily set to work about it. Besides, the work itself is so great that it has passed the credit of report. The erection of vast fortifications, the expenditure on defensive measures on such a large scale, and the recruitment of armies to man and patrol them, these factors all pointed to a sense of doom which was fast approaching. They suggested that the princes and dukes no longer trusted in either their fellow German or in the constitution of the empire alone to protect them, and they thus felt compelled to take matters into their own hands. Indeed, by 1617, it was apparent that the two most important institutions for resolving disputes in the empire, that being the imperial diet and the imperial supreme court, had deteriorated, as both bodies were shorn of all the trust that had traditionally accompanied them. Religion facilitated this deterioration, as a succession of confrontations in the 16th century had reduced the trust individual princes had for what were once viewed as impartial imperial institutions. Now it could be said that religion covered all imperial operations and made itself felt as an agenda to every concerned prince. It can seem bizarre to modern readers, let's be honest, it is a bit odd, that a collection of states so diverse in geography, history and now even in religion could ever be able to exist as one unit, such as the Holy Roman Empire apparently professed itself to be. But the fact of the Holy Roman Empire was made possible by another important fact, that being that the nation-state, so normal and accepted in today's world, was a rarity in the 17th century. Rather than states or even countries, it is in some ways more helpful to imagine dynasties laying claim to swathes of territory which were ruled on the micro-level by regional assemblies, also known as estates. Thus the Austrian Habsburgs ruled over the Habsburg hereditary lands, which in the early 17th century referred to Austria, Bohemia, portions of North Italy and a slice of Hungary. The Spanish Habsburgs ruled over Portugal, Spain, Milan, Naples, the Spanish Netherlands and vast sections of the Americas. The Bourbon family ruled France and Navarre, but the country of France as we imagine it had not been a unitary state for very long and different traditions of loyalty and religion existed north and south of the country, particularly in the Languedoc region in the south, where Protestantism was more of an established tradition, and Richelieu was going to have serious problems with this in the future. Similarly, the Stuart family ruled England and Scotland, and laid claim to Ireland as a kingdom, but in the latter's case it was impossible, even with the recent expulsion of Ulster's rebellious Irish earls, 
to guarantee loyalty across the island of Ireland. Fledgling colonies in the New World and trading posts in Asia were also operated in the name of Stuart. We could go on, but in the Europe of 1600, the continent was divided into spheres of influence and claims, rather than legally, wholly accepted, delineated borders. With the arguable exception of the Dutch Republic, which remained largely unchanged in its size, Poland ruled over Belarus, Ukraine and Lithuania, Sweden ruled over Finland, Denmark ruled over Norway. Far to the east, the House of Romanov was only beginning, from 1613, to stake its claim to the far-flung territories to its distant east and north, where the borders of Russia would eventually extend. This crash course in 17th century statehood demonstrates that, while the Holy Roman Empire is perhaps the most well-known multi-ethnic, multi-religious and multi-layered polity, it was far, very far indeed, from the only one. Perhaps it is the curious stature of the Habsburg family that draws the eye. Consider, for instance, the fact that in the early 20th century it was possible to bemoan the multiple ethnicities which the Austro-Hungarian Habsburgs ruled over, and yet few such lamentations were spared for the German Empire, which also ruled over Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, Danes, and many more identities besides. A case could be made for the idea that strong leadership and a record of success masked all such questions about the suitability or longevity of a state while the grounds for the absolutist rule of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were certainly established in the 17th century, there can be no doubt that the Habsburg monarchy of the 20th century was a great deal more powerful than its 17th century model, if we take just the restrictions or prerogatives placed upon that dynasty in its sphere of influence. This was because the Habsburg family did not and could not claim to rule over the Holy Roman Empire. Its position as the traditional family of choice since 1438 for candidates in the office of Holy Roman Emperor never enabled it to claim any kind of lordship over the totality of the empire's subjects, let alone the individual rulers. Since the mid-16th century, Habsburg emperors had been forced to grant numerous concessions to their subjects in return for support against the Turks, a tradition of give-and-take which passed into the 17th century as we have seen. These concessions were considerable. They included representative assemblies, the estates, which were established in Upper and Lower Austria, and which were staffed by the increasingly Protestant aristocracy that dominated there. By the year 1580, some 90% of the nobility in Lower Austria was Protestant, yet despite the Catholic creed of the ruling Habsburgs, the religion of these nobles did not restrict their political rights for Emperor Maximilian II had been forced in 1571 to concede freedom of religion to all nobles in Lower Austria in return for their support for taxes to pay for defensive measures against, you guessed it, the Ottoman threat. In 1578, the estates of Upper Austria cobbled together a small force of 1,500 men to drive the point home to the new emperor, Rudolf II, that they expected similar religious rights as their neighbours, and these were promised in return for their support. That same year in Inner Austria, the Protestant estates agitated for religious freedoms in return for a commitment on their part to maintain a permanent force along the border with the portion of Habsburg-owned Hungary. On the surface, it might seem as though the very foundation of the Habsburg power base was eroding, 
For how could this dynasty exercise its powers or leverage its lands if it was consistently held hostage by religiously jealous rebels? The question was a valid one, and it compelled some leading members of the Habsburg family to meet in secret in 1579 and pledge no more concessions to those grasping Protestants. Solidarity within the Austrian Habsburg family would be the only way forward. Three brothers had inherited four sections of Austria upon the death of their father in 1564. This gets a bit complicated with the names, but we'll do our best because it is important for understanding who owns what at the beginning of the 17th century. So, for the record, Maximilian II gained Upper and Lower Austria, Archduke Charles gained Inner Austria, and Archduke Ferdinand gained Further or Western Austria. If these three brothers wanted to ensure that the splendour and power of their family was maintained, then the malignant, troublesome elements of their homelands would have to be kept in check. Indeed, it should be emphasised that the religious concessions to the Protestants in Austria contradicted one of the main tenets of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, which had then ended the religious wars and the Holy Roman Empire, which the Reformation had ignited. This tenet, termed his rule, his religion, or in the Latin, cuis regio, eius religio, was supported by the principles and expectations of the era. Of course, the people should follow the lead of their ruler. That only made sense. It made the Habsburgs appear weak to concede equal rights to both religious blocks and their lands, even while it might appear to us to be natural and progressive. At this stage, with the Catholic Church mostly moribund with parishes almost permanently vacant, congregations abandoned and the surviving establishments in an unedifying condition, as the historian Geoffrey Parker put it, there was evidently a great deal of work to be done if those Austrian Habsburgs were to restore the position of their religion in Austria and thus reinforce the majesty and security of their rule. The Counter-Reformation arrived in Austria with breakneck speed and force once the son of Archduke Charles, Charles being the son of Emperor Ferdinand who had been granted Inner Austria in 1564, came to rule over his patrimony in 1595. Ferdinand of Styria was 17 years old by the time he made his return after a youth spent surrounded in the influences of Jesuits under whose guidance both his education and religious outlook were formed. Ferdinand engaged with his mission of eradicating heresy from his lands almost immediately upon the assumption of his duties. Paradoxically, considering what we learned in the last episode, Ferdinand was aided by the Turkish war which was then ongoing, largely because his lands were little more than 250 kilometres from the nearest Ottoman triumph. The fear of the Sultan invading their lands compelled the Protestants in Inner Austria to remain loyal to their young Archduke, and in 1599, Ferdinand set up a Reformation Commission to deal with the Protestants and to implement the Counter-Reformation. This began in earnest, with several bold moves in rapid succession. The burning of thousands of books, the forced exile of 2,500 families, and the forced closure of almost 70 Protestant establishments. These efforts were in fact mirrored to some extent by the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, who took advantage of a peasant uprising to impress upon the aristocracy of Lower Austria the necessity of having the Habsburgs on board. The Protestants and their Lutheran preachers had been unable to stop the peasants from revolting, 
but the Catholic Habsburgs had been able to, and when combined with an influx of preachers and missionaries from Jesuit establishments, it had the effect of reversing ever so gradually the spread of the Reformed faith. Nobles appreciated the monolithic appearance of Catholic doctrine and administration in comparison to the often divided and quarrelling segments of Protestantism. Among this group must be considered the man who would later lead Ferdinand's armies, Albrecht of Wallenstein. Albrecht of Wallenstein, who had been born a Lutheran. By converting the leading lights of certain noble families, the Habsburgs could initiate a drip-down process through which the most powerful individuals will become Catholic, and the weaker nobles and peasants would be expelled or shown the advantages that awaited them if they only followed suit and adopted the true faith. From this story, the Jesuits stand out as an organisation that had a profound influence not only on Ferdinand, but also the actual pace and success of the Counter-Reformation itself. The activity of the Jesuits and their investment in young, influential archdukes like Ferdinand will be repaid many hundreds of times over, as Ferdinand reciprocated their investment in his own lands. Jesuits spearheaded the Counter-Reformation and were able to do so mostly from the safety of their universities, which grew from just four to fifty between the years 1561 to 1650. In that 90-year or so span, the number of full members of the Society of Jesus also grew, reaching 870 fully-fledged, keenly zealous members by the middle of the 17th century. As Geoffrey Parker has noted, The face of Catholicism in the Habsburg lands after about 1580 was moulded to an almost unusual degree by the stern, uncompromising, legalistic faith of the Jesuit fathers. As the more tolerant, older generation was gradually removed by death, the temper of religious opinion became steadily more aggressive. Yet, there were limits to how far this counter-reformation could go. Not even the Jesuits seemed willing to touch Hungary, which had not even sent a prelate to Rome since 1553. Hungary boasted no... Ryan Reynolds apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Catholic nobles, no Catholic-controlled towns, and a minuscule Catholic church presence. Yet even despite these facts, Emperor Rudolf engaged in a policy of deliberate confrontation and persecution with the Hungarians under his protection, who lived in Royal Hungary, that third of the country of Hungary which was under his control. The traditional checks on the powers of a Hungarian king, enacted in the 13th century, had been respected by the Habsburg family, as they now held the Hungarian crown. The expectation that the Hungarian traditions would protect the Hungarian people proved unfounded as Emperor Rudolf set to work. He exploited the presence of his armies, who were there in 1600-1602 because of the Turkish War, and he confiscated the lands of the Protestant Hungarian nobles, arresting those that resisted, while many Protestant churches were forcibly returned to Catholic use. In 1604, the Hungarian estates were forbidden from discussing religious matters, and Rudolf personally ordered that heresy in royal Hungary was to be sought out and purged. Rudolf may have been buoyed by the success he had enjoyed in his Austrian patrimony, but this was far too much for the Hungarians to take. Rudolf reaped what his needlessly provocative policies had sown once imperial armies were forced to march out of Hungary and down south to meet a Turkish attack in 1605, in the twilight years of the Habsburg-Turkish Wars. With the military might absent from Hungary, so too did the fear of the population evaporate and the Hungarians became emboldened under a new leader, Stephen Bokshay, who was supported by his fellow Calvinist and Ottoman vassal, Bethlen Gabor, the Prince of Transylvania. Just as the messy Hungarian divorce was underway, Rudolf suffered what must be considered akin to a breakdown. He became more reclusive, and his oldest and closest family members began to despair that the ruin of the Austrian dynasty was at hand. As was usually the case with the Habsburgs, though, crisis was averted with some firm action and consolidation. Rudolf's younger brother, Matthias, was pegged to succeed him at a meeting in Linz in April 1605, and following this, the Habsburgs hastily recruited an army of loyalists to fight the Hungarian rebels. As if connecting these elements still further to the later narrative, this Habsburg army included such figures of later importance as Wallenstein, the Habsburg Generalissimo, and Count Thurn, who would lead the Bohemian rebels for a time in 1618. After some successes, Matthias was able to conclude a peace treaty with the Turks, using the Hungarians as intermediaries, interestingly enough, in June 1606, thus bringing our story back to where we left it last time. I'm going to continue with this narrative of the Holy Roman Empire and Europe in general, but first, history, friends, a brief note on what When Diplomacy Fails is doing on Patreon and why you should care. Before you skip ahead or press that fast forward button, I just want you to know that listening to this show is the best thing you can do and telling people about it seriously helps us so much. The best way to support is to increase the amount of people who would be listening to this show in the first place. There's only so much I can do, but there's thousands of history friends out there who can also do their part. So make sure that you do, simply by telling those who you think might be interested, or sharing our relevant social media posts. If you'd like to go above and beyond, though, and get some sweet things in return, then head on over to Patreon, where for $5 a month, you can access Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which runs every other week, 
and basically ensures that you get a podcast episode every single week. If you weren't aware, we're currently looking at the early 18th century, specifically the Great Northern War and Charles XII of Sweden's ridiculous military record. It's a really great story and we're only just getting started. We just released episode 5, I think it was. So make sure you head on down by clicking the link in the description below. If you want to pledge a bit more or a bit less, you'll also get different rewards. For $2, you'll get these episodes of the 30 Years War, but you won't have to hear me natter on in these little ad breaks, and you won't get those Acast ads either, because those really grind my gears. Don't know about you, but they really grind my gears. For $7 a month, you could be lucky enough to get what... $7 patron Matt got at the beginning of this episode. A shout-out on this show and me making something silly up about you, because what else could you want in life? There is a $1 level of support as well, and for that, you get a 10-part series on Louis XIV's Arms and Armies. So seriously, for a very small amount of money, you could be getting a very large amount of audio content. But maybe you're just sick of my voice anyway, and you don't need any extra content. That's grand. But bear in mind... We are reliant on you, whether that's moral support or monetary support. So thanks for putting up with me, and thanks for spreading the word, and making sure that when diplomacy fails, is where history thrives. But back to our story. And the peace agreed with the Ottoman Empire, as we learned in the last episode, was destined to hold for a surprisingly long time. Against the expectations of many, it would last for more than a generation and it provided the Habsburgs with the eastern security that they desperately needed to engage in their European pursuits with their full attention and resources. Yet, while the Turks would remain quiescent and mostly occupied with battling against the Persians, the Transylvanians, Hungarians and even Austrian estates would not remain quiescent and would not roll over for the benefit of the Austrian Habsburgs. If the Austrian Habsburgs had learned anything from this decade of turmoil, persecution and proselytizing, it was that they could get away with extirpating heresy closer to home, but they would have to tread carefully outside of home. At the same time, though, there seemed little consideration of the possibility that one revolt could lead to another, as happened in 1618, and the enthusiasm for spreading Catholicism at the expense of stability or the rights of one's subjects had certainly not been diminished. Considering the damage done to the trust and sense of goodwill in the Habsburgs' own lands, and the similar damage done to the traditional avenues for redress in the Imperial Diet and Supreme Court, it can appear as a march towards the inevitable conflagration of 1618. Other ill omens were easily found. In 1599, just as Ferdinand was setting up his Reformation Commission, the lands in the Principality of Westphalia were ravaged by Spanish troops in search of food and fodder. The spilling over of the Eighty Years' War into the Holy Roman Empire was by no means unheard of, but in this case, the affected parties acted to expel the invader with significant consequences. Those princes in a position to do so within Westphalia attempted to recruit soldiers to eject the Spanish, but these soldiers could not dislodge the more experienced Spaniards, and before long, it became clear that the same princes who had attempted to recruit these soldiers did not actually have the money to pay for their service. Realising this, it transpired that the Westphalian princes had created something of a monster, as those soldiers mutinied and wandered the countryside in search of payment in kind. 
The fiasco cost the princes 400,000 talers, in addition to the damage done by the Spanish in the first place and the regional institutions in place to encourage cooperation between these potentates were greatly discredited all in all. By the second decade of the 17th century, as we saw at the beginning of this episode, princes recruited soldiers of their own, resulting in the appearance of an empire that had apparently transformed itself into one large mustering field, with imposing fortifications rising up from the ground where plentiful soldiers couldn't be found. Among these supranational institutions were the aforementioned Imperial Diet and Supreme Court, which represented the hundreds of potentates in the empire on the macro level, but it is also worth investigating the micro level, represented by the ten effective Reichskreis, or imperial circles, which were composed according to geography. These circles enabled the smaller princes to have their concerns heard, and to debate on a forum which entitled them to a single vote regardless of size or power. In the past, they had also been tasked with raising an army for the purpose of defending their area of the empire from attack. It was unlikely that all within a circle would agree on a given policy, and even less likely that all would be united in religious outlook, and it was also impossible to predict what all of these ten circles would do in the event of a crisis that consumed the empire. We are thus confronted with the Holy Roman Empire in 1608 that appeared more divided than ever before and less capable of properly dealing with its problems as a collective unit. The whole concept of consensus had broken down and the religious peace made in 1555 had since been outpaced by the unnatural and unpredictable spread of religious creeds, not to mention the acceptance of a new creed, Calvinism. In addition to the paralysis of these institutions and the divisions and mistrust which grew from them, the Turkish war sapped the financial reserves of the Austrian Habsburgs, and the tumultuous nature of the Diet meant that one of the key functions of that Diet, the approval of tax for a war, could not be effected. Thus, the knock-on effect of the religious quarrels meant that Rudolf, Emperor Matthias, and then Emperor Ferdinand II, were unable to reduce the war debt, and an unpaid sum of almost 4 million talers hung over Emperor Ferdinand II when he ascended in 1619, just as he was about to embark on another impossibly expensive conflict. That he was already so deeply in debt influenced Ferdinand's later behaviour in the war, because he was not in a position to pay the Duke of Bavaria or the Elector of Saxony for their loyalty, he promised them lands, and in Maximilian of Bavaria's case, titles in the place of that pay. In such a way did the disastrous divisions highlighted by the Turkish war make themselves felt during the Thirty Years' War. Yet, while it is true to say that Ferdinand II was deeply in debt, he was far from the only one of his contemporaries to owe more than he owned. Indeed, in the context of the early 17th century, the physical solvency of Maximilian of Bavaria was the exception rather than the rule, and this even considering the fact that, according to C.V. Wedgwood, Maximilian was renowned for his meanness when it came to money. Perhaps Maximilian was wise to be so frugal, though. Germany not only underwent a great deal of religious division from the end of the 16th century into the early years of the 17th, she also experienced a severe economic recession. One historian noted that the financial crisis continued beyond 1619 and up to 1623, as those states within the empire 
produced their own coins at increasing pace to provide pay or contributions amidst the troubling situation. It is also possible to view the 17th century simply as a period of general crisis, as some historians, such as Geoffrey Parker, have done. That the empire was suffering from intractable divisions was a fact loudly underlined when Protestants walked out of the Diet in Augsburg in 1608 and then in Regensburg in 1613 in protest at the refusal of the Catholics to address their grievances. Yet this apparent paralysis of the empire's overarching institutions did not automatically ruin the ability of either princes or smaller regional assemblies to cooperate. In a sense, the empire became less centralised before the Bohemian Revolt broke out, but it is important not to overstate the importance of the imperial diet or the Supreme Court at the same time. After all, from 1555 to 1603, even before it became associated with disorder, the imperial diet met only six times, and three of these occasions was during the Turkish War, when we can assume the emergency of war forced everyone to gather together and talk to each other. So long as each individual ruler remained responsible and did not seek to antagonise his opponents, there was no reason for a great conflagration. It is worth making a note on religious divisions as well, in case the impression is given that members of the different confessions were permanently at one another's throats. The reality was, predictably enough, a great deal more complex. Classifications of the Thirty Years' War normally attempt to place the conflict in a confessional or a political box. In other words, they attempt to say that the Thirty Years' War was a religious war or a political or strategic war. Yet we would be more correct to remind ourselves of the facts on the ground in the early 17th century. As the historian Peter H. Wilson has written, Members of the same church disagreed violently over the proper relationship between belief and action. Even if, for some, the Thirty Years' War was a holy war in which eternal salvation was at stake, most were less willing to believe that God had called them to arms. They remained more pragmatic. The distinction was not one between the religious and the secular outlook, for both, faith, inseparable from daily life, helped to determine attitudes to law and politics. Religion mattered everywhere one went, yet it meant very different things to different people, and of course, to different rulers. To some, religion was an end in itself, and to others it was only worth spreading if it aided the common good. However, it would be reductionist to take religion out of the equation altogether when examining the march towards the Thirty Years' War. After all, it was the presence of such distinct religious disagreements in Germany in the first place that led to the decline in trust and efficiency necessary for the traditional mechanisms of the empire to function. In addition, whether we attempt to explain the actions of Ferdinand II or Frederick V in political, religious, constitutional or international terms, there can be no doubt that neither man acted without the firm belief that God was on his side. Ferdinand, indeed, lay prostrate and took succour from the Almighty before facing the Bohemian rebels down. Frederick V, upon suffering his worst defeat at White Mountain, was compelled to view the experience as a trial from God, rather than as a sign that his cause was doomed and he should pack it in. At the same time, of course, the religious inclinations of both men did not prevent either from relying on allies of a different religious persuasion to their own, once it suited them. The political and the religious were thus mutually dependent, rather than mutually exclusive influences.
The contradiction inherent in the fact that those in opposing religious camps were as capable of confrontation as they were of cooperation reminds us that a great deal of what occurred in the Thirty Years' War was charged by the actions of certain individuals. Now this appears like an obvious fact, but this fact is often lost when confronting the sheer morass of details and apparent warning signs that seem to imply that the Empire, and therefore Europe, were heading for a catastrophe either way. Disagreements, of course, exist on this point, as many historians have attempted to provide their own authoritative account on the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. As this incredibly complex era has already shown us, though, this origins story cannot be told without examining all of the contingent parts. Indeed, the story of the Thirty Years' War would be incomplete without examining its two major protagonists in both the Habsburg and anti-Habsburg camp. In the next episode, we introduce the first of these characters with a proper assessment of Frederick V, the Elector Palatine. I hope you'll join me for that history, friends and patrons. But until then, my name is Zach, and this has been Episode 8 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 